Welcome to the Impact Nations podcast, episode 528, Rumors of Christ. Now this week, we've actually got a couple of firsts for you. Uh, I don't want to spoil the ending, but we may have our first ever disagreement with the church fathers. And also this week, for the first time, we're going to leave you, the listener, with a bit of homework. So now let's pick up where we left off at the second half of Matthew chapter 13. Hello, everyone. Good to be back together again on this study of Matthew's Gospel. Uh, We're in episode 28. Last week, uh, I started on the uh, third discourse of Jesus, which is the parables discourse. And today we're going to continue on uh, through this chapter, and I'm going to present interpretations with two fundamentally different approaches. So let's start with uh, verse 24, the uh, parable of the wheat and the tares. Here's another story Jesus told. The kingdom of heaven is like a farmer who planted good seed in his field, but that night as the workers slept, his enemy came and planted weeds among the wheat, then slipped away. When the crop began to grow and produce grain, the weeds also grew. The farmer's uh, workers went to him and said, Sir, the field where you planted the good seed is full of weeds. Where did they come from? An enemy has done this, the farmer exclaimed. Should we put out the weeds, pull out the weeds? They said, no, you'll uproot the wheat if you do. Let both grow together until the harvest. Then I will tell the harvesters to sort out the weeds, to put them into bundles and burn them and put the wheat in the barn. Now, only Matthew records this parable. It's it's another farming parable which we talked a little bit about that last week, uh, how uh, the, the context in, uh, in Galilee, which was primarily, dominantly, uh, an agrarian society. Anyway, the weeds specified here are uh, darnel, which uh, in early stages, darnel looks like wheat. But its seeds are actually poisonous. And when mixed with the wheat... It makes the crop commercially useless and, in fact, potentially dangerous. Roman law, in fact, punished anyone who sowed darnel into their enemy's field. Darnel intertwined as it grew with the wheat, made it much more difficult and time-consuming to separate it. Well, we're going to look at several issues uh, in this parable. The first one is, is this a story about the mixed character of the church, which is often assumed, or is it about the mixed nature of the individual, which includes both good and bad? It's a parable that immediately follows the sower and leads to the mustard seed. Together, they present a view of the kingdom as being present, but unexpectedly, with evil still present too. There's different options for interpreting. Historically, this parable has been important in discussions of the Christian's response to evil. Parable is addressing the church. Is the, here's three possibilities. The church is addressing the church as a body consisting of both good and evil. Therefore, it's giving church direction for dealing with heresy. The parable deals with the problem of a mixed community and warns them not to try to purify the church of wrongdoers. This parable, therefore, is a call to patience. And less frequently, the parable addresses the conflict of good and evil within the individual. Now let's jump down to verse 36, where Jesus gives 
the explanation of the parable. When he left the crowds and went into the house and his disciples approached him saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. He answered, The one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world, and the good seed are the children of the kingdom. The weeds are the children of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are the angels. Just as the weeds are collected and burned up with fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will collect out of his kingdom all causes of sin and evildoers, and they will throw them into the furnace of fire, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. Let everyone with ears hear. So, we need to make some decisions here about the meaning and purpose of this parable. Is it Jesus preaching to Israel, telling them there is a time of crisis and judgment coming? And if that's the case, is he speaking in terms of end times, what's called eschatological? Or is he speaking uh, historically, that, that if they don't change their way, they're going to be crushed by Rome, which happened in A.D. 70? Or perhaps this parable is Matthew's coded message reflecting the situation in the early church. Matthew seeks to tell us about Jesus, but also influence the church. Remember, this was written probably 25 to 35 years after what Jesus said, and he wrote it specifically for the church. He was probably a member of the church in Antioch. So, is that his main purpose. Now, this, this, this perspective of influencing the church is the predominant view for a few out, throughout much of church history. Church fathers largely held this view. In fact, St. Augustine, he made this interpretation official. 11, 1200 years later, the reformers agreed with this. This parable is primarily about the church. So we could just kind of assume that. And frankly, lots of commentators uh, right up into our age do that. However, there's a few things to consider. This parable begins with the kingdom of heaven is like, but nowhere in Matthew does he equate the kingdom with the church? Remember when we looked at the mission discourse of chapter 10, he sent them out to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom, not to proclaim church. And also, there's another reason. Verse 38 uh, says this, the field is the world. So, that creates a bit of a problem for just carte blanche saying this is about the church. Um, Perhaps it's more likely that this parable is about the fact that the righteous and sinners coexist in the world, even when the kingdom is present. Uh, It does not, the kingdom doesn't eliminate all evil and opposition. That must wait till the final harvest, which will be a time of separation and judgment. The disciples of Jesus, and later the church, may have found it confusing 
uh, that good and evil continue in spite of Jesus' proclamation of the kingdom and in spite of his very concrete assault on Satan. So here's a question. What sort of kingdom is it that allows opposition to continue? And I think the parable answers that question with a call to patience. Jesus moves attention from a a thoroughly present tense perspective to one that includes a future perspective. You know, it's interesting that current writers, almost without exception, see in this parable the final judgment against sinners. Verse 42, they will cast them into the furnace of fire. There will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. R.T. France, a wonderful commentator, said this, and it's typical of the, of the position of current writers. These verses provide us with one of the most explicit accounts of final judgment and of the ultimate fates of, um, of the good and the bad, which we find in the Gospels. This parable is two-pronged. It's about that the, the, the kingdom is present. In the midst of an evil world, the kingdom is here, and it's here because of the ministry of Jesus and the work of the Holy Spirit. But the second prong is this. While it's not yet time for judgment, evil is coexisting, It judgment will certainly come. The kingdom will cause a sifting and separation of good and evil. Verse 39, and the enemy who sowed the weeds is the devil. This is made very explicit by Jesus. I want to say this. We must never lose sight of the dualism of Scripture. There is a cosmic war going on between God and Satan, between good and evil. To ignore this war, to ignore the devil, is to let him sneak in while they slept, as it said in verse 25. I think a right perspective of the cross includes an awareness of the victory of Christ at the cross over Satan and over the dark powers. So a key point here is that God is not the only one at work in the world. Therefore, all actions cannot be attributed to him. We so easily fall into this. I think it's almost like a hyper-sovereignist. Well, God just will let it happen. He'll let happen whatever happens. Or it must be his hidden purpose why someone got sick or died or an accident. No, we're in a war, and we need to learn to fight in that war. This parable reminds us that we must not be asleep. The kingdom comes, and it advances. We saw that in chapter 12. And it advances, but it's in spite of and in the midst of evil in the world. A favorite commentator of mine is uh, F.D. Bruner, and he said this, The weeds are in the midst of the wheat. The children of the evil one are in the company of the children of the kingdom. The devil's kingdom within the sons. It is not a case of two kingdoms or camps pitched at discernible distance from each other so that we can readily see the enemy is over there in another group. Jesus gives his church the sobering news that the enemy is within the camp. Verse 41. 
and they will collect out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all evildoers. Interesting phrase, causes of sin. Literally, it is all those who are scandals. It's a word we don't use anymore. We, we use a derivative, scandalous. All those who are scandals who are doing lawlessness. Matthew's always concerned with the, the fruit of righteousness, that, that right believing must lead to right living. We've seen it all the way through, the Sermon on the Mount and beyond. Behavior is the decisive criterion for Matthew. And we see that in Jesus' final public address. Verse uh, chapter 25, the sheep and the goats, they were not separated based on their doctrine or their prayer life, or how much they read the Bible or went to church. They were separated based on behavior. They gave food to the hungry or they didn't. They clothed the naked or they didn't. They made room in their lives for the stranger or they didn't. Now, there's something else I want to point out before we move on. For a few years now, I see myself in this parable. I hate the the tares, the weeds I see in my life, and I want them immediately removed. But I think that God even uses my sin to bring me closer to him and to show me again and again my great need for him. I'm going to read you a lengthy quote, actually from a couple of different passages, from Julian of Norwich. I've shared before in this podcast series that personally, uh, part of my morning time, besides the scriptures and, and prayer and some contemplation, I love to read the contemplatives. And Julian of Norwich is one of my, and maybe my favorite. I've been reading her for maybe five years. She is actually the first English woman ever published. She lived the same time as Chaucer. Um, he lived in the, in the 1300s, the 14th century. So let me give you a little bit of, uh, of Julian of Norwich today. I saw that nothing held me back except sin. It seemed to me that if there had been no sin, we should all have been pure and like our Lord. I'd often wondered why, through the great foreseeing wisdom of God, the beginning of sin was not prevented. But then it seemed to me... Uh, for then, it seemed to me all would have been well. But Jesus answered with these words, Sin is befitting, that means necessary. But all shall be well, and all shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well. Without a doubt, the most famous quote from Julian. She goes on in the writing, and she's talking with Christ about the suffering that her own sin causes her. And it seems to me this suffering is something that exists uh, for a while because it purges us and makes us know ourselves and ask for mercy. So I saw how Christ has compassion on us because of our sin. In these same words, I saw a marvelous and exalted mystery hidden in God, a mystery which he has, uh, which he will make openly known to us in heaven, in which knowledge we shall truly see the reason 
why he allowed sin to come about. And in the sight of this, we shall rejoice in our Lord God forever. I love that. Well, let's go on to two very short parables, the mustard seed and the leaven, verses 31 to 33. And Jesus continues to teach here uh, deep truths in in very simple examples. Before I do, let me give you a quote I came across recently from St. Jerome, one of the early church fathers. The scripture's gospel is shallow enough for babes to wade in and never drown, and yet deep enough for scholars to swim in and never touch bottom. Isn't that wonderful? Now let's read those two short parables. Jesus put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it had grown, uh, when it's grown, it is larger than all of the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. These types of short parables are actually called similitudes. It comes from the same word we get simile. If you remember your high school English, uh, a simile compares two objects or contrasts them uh, with like and as. Uh, So there's a simple illustration of of a profound truth. And Jesus presents them in pairs for emphasis. Uh, We're going to, you know, later on, there's the treasure in the field and the pearl of great price. So there's several historical interpretations of the mustard seed and the leaven. One, the growth and development of the church. Two, the individual spiritual growth. Three, the progression of Jesus' life from his birth through crucifixion and resurrection. You know, in modern times, as we read um, commentators and theologians, uh, this these two parables are largely seen as about the effect of the church on the society around it. Another thing that's always pointed out is the apparent smallness of Jesus' ministry in Galilee becomes an all-encompassing kingdom. So, these parables both make the simple point that the kingdom starts small and becomes large. Now, it's interesting with the 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 mustard seed and becomes the, the, the tree and the, the greatest plant in the garden. Some suggested that Jesus was using irony. He said that like with a smile or a twinkle in his eye, uh, almost to parody, because the mustard plant was not the largest in the garden and everybody knew that. It spread out wide, but it stayed low above the ground. I think that's significant for us. And what his audience was hoping for and looking for was the kingdom. They were looking for a kingdom that would come with great triumph and would finally get rid of the oppressive Romans. But this parable says it's already here, but it's in seed form. It doesn't come with a big bang. It starts small and is almost unnoticed. I think we need to remember and recognize that principle for our time. That's how the kingdom works. It doesn't work with big, huge, splashy things. It's not about big programs or, or, or big, huge projects. It, it starts small. Kingdom activity, we watch this all the time. We watch it here at Impact Nations. It starts small. But as we stay faithful, it grows and grows and grows, and we look back and we're amazed. 
See, like the cross, these parables challenge our human perspective uh, about smallness and what we consider is important. Remember Zechariah 4.10 that, you know, despise not the days of small beginning. We often fail to recognize the seed planted by God. That's why in the second parable of, of the leaven or yeast, the, the key word there is it's like a woman who hid, who hid the leaven. This word draws attention to the hiddenness of the kingdom of heaven from the wise and the intelligent. Remember in chapter 11, Jesus said that, that the kingdom is hidden from the wise and intelligent. It's revealed to babes. It's given to disciples as a secret. That word hid also reminds us that the gospel will rarely be front page news. Um, Sometimes we're amazed, aren't we? We'll hear of some incredible thing that happens and it never makes it to the news. So that word hid reminds us that that's not going to happen. And it's going to remain hidden to most eyes. So I want to transition now. We've, we, I want to talk about mystery. Um, so far today, we've looked at these parables from primarily an historical critical perspective. And uh, we've looked at what are usually considered the correct interpretations of the parables. This is because of the deeply ingrained value that we as moderns place upon accuracy, fact, correctness. Um, you know, we live with this dualistic view that it's either right or it's wrong. We're for or against it, in or out, us or them. We've been trained, folks, and I talked about this early on in this series, but we've been trained to see the Bible as propositional truth. We've heard it said, the Bible has the answer for every problem and issue in life. However, for the first thousand years, the Bible was understood as something not propositional truth. It was something that expressed and embraced the mystery of Christ, the mystery of God. The Bible was seen as an invitation into that mystery. St. Ambrose said this, My brothers and sisters, glory consists in this, that we should plumb the depths of the mystery hidden before all ages in God. So in Scripture, what is meant by mystery? Mystery is something that is a divine secret that is revealed by God in his perfect time for our understanding. But we can never fully understand. It leads to the depths of God, what Paul called the unsearchable riches of Christ. Mysteries are revealed truths that surpass the powers of of natural and material reason. In Scripture, although we think of, you know, Sherlock Holmes or, or our favorite mystery movies, mystery in Scripture doesn't mean that at all. It's not something to be solved. It's a deep truth that is being revealed. You know, the New Testament refers to mystery 28 times, Paul 21 times. But, but it's not something we hear about very often at all from the pulpit. Mystery, of course is filled with paradox. 
seemingly there's there's contrary truths held in tension. I think that this is part of why uh, the, the, in our modern era in the church there's a discomfort that keeps us from pursuing the mystery of God. We have trouble with paradox. The two great truths about God revolve around this paradox, his otherness and his nearness. When I say otherness, I mean he's invisible, he's transcendent, he's beyond understanding. To claim to understand him through reasoning is to fashion an idol made in our own image. And that, I'm sorry to say, is what so easily we do. It's called anthropomorphism. We put our human characteristics onto God and say, he's like us. But he's transcendent. He is thoroughly, completely other. But secondly, in this paradox, is his nearness. The the infinite, transcendent God of mystery who fill, is the one who fills all things. He's present everywhere around us and within us. He's the God who is infinitely beyond our understanding, and yet he reveals himself as person. He calls us by name, and we answer him as person. We are invited into a relationship of love with the transcendent God. God is both further and nearer than anything else at the same time. John Duns Scotus, a medieval theologian and philosopher, said this, Every visible or invisible creature is a theophany or appearance of God. A few weeks ago, I think I introduced a word to you, panentheism. It's not pantheism. Pantheism says God is in God is the creation. Panentheism says that Christ reveals himself in and through his creation, that all of the created universe is an expression of Christ, his creator. Now, having talked a little bit about mystery, before we go any further, it's really important that we don't feel like we have to choose between the historical modern reading context and the allegorical mystery, what we've called water-to-wine reading. We're to embrace both of them and find the richness within them. Now, I would encourage us to begin to find freedom from the right-answer thinking, which is the only way we've ever been taught to think. So, let's go back to these parables briefly as we move on. We need to learn to read at three levels. We've said this through this whole season. The literal, which is the intention of the author, the moral, how to be Christ-like, and the water-to-wine, today I would say water-to-wine, spiritual mystery reading. Secondly, to review Christ is the interpretive key for all of Scripture. He unlocks the true spiritual water-to-wine meaning of the Old Testament. Another church father from late in the second century said this, Irenaeus, But if anyone reads the Scriptures closely, he will discover in them rumors of Christ 
and foreshadowing of a new calling. Isn't that wonderful? Rumors of Christ and foreshadowing of a new calling. So as we look at these parables again, rather than be confused or validate uh, or evaluate rather the validity of each interpretation, let's let them serve to lead us on a journey into the depths. John Christostom said the parables must not be explained literally, since many absurdities would follow. Isn't that interesting? So now let's go back to the wheat and the weeds. Verse 24, here's another story. Jesus told the kingdom of heaven is like a farmer who planted good seed in his field. (coughs) We've already looked from the historical critical perspective. Chromatius, another church father. I'm going to just read to you. I'm not going to even editorialize much. I'm going to let you see how church fathers, how before the Enlightenment, uh, before the Reformation, certainly uh, long before our modern time, I want you to see how church fathers saw the the water-to-wine understanding in these same parables that we've just covered. Chromatius said this, the Lord clearly points out that he is the sower of good seeds. He does not cease to sow into this world as in a field. But watch this. God's word is like good seed in the hearts of people, so that each of us, by God, may bear bear spiritual and heavenly fruit. So it's much more individualized. It's not a them. Well, it's there's there's bad people and good people. Origin said this. Whatever good things are sown in the human soul. There it is again. These are the offspring of the kingdom of God and have been sown by God, the word, who was in the beginning with God. So that wholesome words about anything are children of the kingdom. Do you hear that? Wholesome words about anything are children of the kingdom. We've already seen that Jesus told the disciples that the field is the world. So does this mean there can be no further interpretation? Remember what I told you a few minutes ago. It's not either or. It's both and. We embrace. So Chromatius understood this parable to mean that that the, the heart is the world that matters. Origin opens up the understanding so that just as seeds bring forth life, so wholesome words do the same in the world around us. Also, they reflect the good seed that has been planted by Jesus in our hearts. Remember, when we looked at chapter 12, Jesus said, for out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So, Jesus is talking to us about the sin and the failings in our lives, and in the world. Verse 25, But that night, as the workers slept, an enemy, his enemy came and planted weeds among the wheat, then slipped away. When the crop began to grow and produce grain, the weeds also grew. Origin. The wicked terrors, that is, evil words, which spring from wickedness, are children of the evil one. Isn't that interesting? 
The Lord points out that, Chromatius, the Lord points out that our foe, the devil, sows the weeds of his wickedness and malice to choke the seed of God in us. The tares, according to them, are not wicked people, but evil words. Tolerating evil makes us sons of the, of the wicked one. As long as we're tolerating them, Satan always seeks to steal, kill, and destroy. And evil words from us accomplish his purpose. Remember when in chapter 16, which we'll get to later, but, but famously, Jesus said to Peter, Get ye behind me, Satan. I must remember that I produce tares. Verse 40, just as the weeds are collected and burned up with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels and they will collect out of his kingdom all causes of sin, literally all things that make them stumble, and all evildoers. Origen saw it this way, at the end of things, which is called the consummation of the age, there will of necessity be a harvest in order that the angels of God who have been appointed for this work may gather up the bad opinions that have grown upon the soil. Bad opinions means bad words, bad actions, bad attitudes that have grown upon the soil and overturning them may give them over to the fire which is said to burn that they may be consumed. The bad opinions, not the people. He gathers from the whole kingdom of God all things that make men stumble. Verse 42, And they will throw them into the furnace of fire where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. First of all, folks, I want to remind you, one of the things we've taught you right from week two is Jesus' use of, re- use of rhetoric, using strong language, almost hyperbole, exaggerated language to break through, to change people's hearts and minds and thoughts, that, that the, the parables are filled with rhetoric. So remember that when he says, he'll throw them into the furnace of fire where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. But aside from that, let me read again. This is, uh, I've got a fair bit here from Origen because he wrote extensively on this parable. And so the angels and servants of the word will gather from the kingdom of Christ all things that cause a stumbling block to souls and reasonings that create iniquity, which they scatter and cast into the burning fire. Okay, so they're going to gather the things that cause stumbling blocks and create sin, iniquity. Then those who become conscious that they have received the seeds of the evil one in themselves because of their having been asleep, they shall wail and, as it were, be angry against themselves, for this is the gnashing of teeth. Verse 43 Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. Origin again. But when he gathers from the whole kingdom of Christ all things that make people stumble, then shall the righteous, having become one light of the sun, shine in the kingdom of their father. Even now the light of the disciples of Jesus shines before the rest of men. And after their death, before the resurrection, and after the resurrection until all shall attain into a full-grown man 
Interesting, that's right from the scripture that all shall attain. Ephesians 4.13, and all become one. Um, They shall then shine as the sun in the kingdom of their father. Let's look at the mustard seed and the leaven. Remember how we saw how these were interpreted by the historical critical method. One, that they're about the growth and development of the church. Two, about individual spiritual growth. And three, the progression of Jesus' life. Now we'll look at some of what the church fathers saw in them. To to enter into this water-to-wine mystery of Christ reading. So the mustard seed. St. Ambrose said this. I loved this. I recall meeting this mustard seed in another passage where it is compared to faith. If you have faith as much as a mustard seed, you shall say to this mountain, go cast yourself into the sea. If the kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed, and if faith is like a grain of mustard seed, it follows that faith is definitely the kingdom of heaven, and the kingdom of heaven is definitely faith. Therefore, if you have faith, you have the kingdom of heaven. The grain is very simple and ordinary, he goes on to say. But grind it, and you will see what vigor it has. So, too, faith appears at first to be simple and ordinary. But if crushed by its enemies, it spreads everywhere its virtue and grace. Folks, we see this in, with many of our partners in the developing world that the more persecution that comes against them, the more crushing, to use Ambrose's term, the more it spreads. Elsewhere, Ambrose wrote this, The Lord chose to be bruised. So the first picture he sees is is about us, is about disciples of Christ being crushed. Now he sees another picture, all from the same verse. The Lord chose to be bruised. He chose to be crushed. He chose to be planted in the earth. For it was in a garden that Christ was taken prisoner, where he also rose from the dead and became a tree. He is a tree when he rises again, a tree that gives shade to the world. Which is, again, alluding to what Jesus said in the parable of the mustard seed. He is a seed when he's buried in the earth. He is a tree when raised to heaven. He is the least of all seeds because he came not in power, nor in wealth, nor in wisdom of this world, but suddenly he unfolds as a tree the soaring eminence of his might. St. Ephraim said this, Our Lord himself is the seed, a grain of mustard seed, and his father sowed him into the world as in a garden. But St. Christostom says this, His disciples were the weakest and least of all. Nevertheless, because of the great power that was in them, it has grown and been unfolded in every part of the world. In other words, his disciples are the seed. St. Hilary, the seed's inherent potency is heightened under pressure and stress. Therefore, after this grain is sown in the field, that is, when it has been seized by someone, delivered up to death as though buried in the field by a sowing of his body, it grows up to become larger than any herb and surpasses all the glory of the prophets. Let's very briefly look at leaven. 
He told them another parable, the kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid, we talked about hid a few minutes ago, in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. St. Ambrose, the leaven is our Lord Jesus. It is mixed until the color of heavenly wisdom reaches to the deepest and most secret depths of our soul. Again, he sees it very personally. He goes on to say, in Matthew, we read that the yeast was immersed in three measures of flour. This would suggest that the Son of God was hidden in the law, failed in the prophets, and fulfilled in the teaching of the gospel. So, from Jerome, he sees in this short parable that it's about the work in our own lives, but he also sees that it, the, the three measures represent um, represent the law, the prophets, and the gospel. Now, St. Jerome, the same passage. The woman takes the yeast, namely the knowledge and understanding of the scriptures. That's what the yeast is for him. And mixes it with three measures of flour so that the spirit, soul, and body blended into one might not differ from each other but intermingle, obtaining from the Father whatever they ask for. That's probably as many examples as you can take in today. So let me finish with this. This mystery of Christ, this This water-to-wine reading of Scripture is so counterintuitive for all of us who've grown up seeking to know the right answer. We want to know the right answer at school. We want to know the right answer in everything. And we sure want to know the right answer when we read Scripture. Again, seeing it as propositional truth. Because for us, the right answer is the basis of knowledge. Paul says, however, that in Christ is hidden the mysteries of knowledge. In Christ is hidden the richness of true knowledge. Notice that in the last two church father quotes I gave you, very intentionally, they had a completely different interpretation of the same verse. One said law, prophets, and gospel. The other said, no, it's the spirit, soul, and body. So which is right? We need to learn to ask different questions of the Lord. Instead of which is right, what do you want to reveal to me when I read this passage today? It likely won't be the same thing that he wants to open up to me and in me at another time. Now, as I prepared this, I purposely did not finish this chapter. For all those who, if if some hunger has been stirred, I'm giving you a little homework. I've left the parables of the treasure in the field, which, by the way, is one of my favorites. I think it's a parable of of joy. Uh, the, The parable of the pearl of great price and the parable of the dragnet. I've left those for you to consider. And as you do, remember what we've looked at again and again, the literal reading, which is, what was Matthew's intent? The moral reading. How can this make me more Christ-like? And the spiritual reading which I would call the mystery of Christ revealed. So there we go. I ask you to really consider all of this and remember it's not right or wrong. Don't be dualistic, in or out, us or them. Don't be dualistic when you read the scriptures. Let 
Christ's Spirit take you deeper and deeper and deeper into multiple meanings because he speaks to us as we learn this in multiple, multiple ways because he knows exactly, exactly what we need to hear from him for this particular time. God bless you. In just a minute or so, Tim and I will will talk about what we've covered today. Now what? The gospel is meant to be lived. We now invite you to be a part of the discussion as we talk about how to apply this teaching. YouTube viewers can use the comments section below. You can also email your questions and comments to podcast at impactnations.com. Well, welcome back. We are going to jump right into questions because I want to pick up exactly where you left off uh, with this this concept of we've got to get away from seeking the one right answer. And I'm interested to get your input, your feedback on what damage you think this has done or how this has really caused both individuals and the church at large to um, be stunted in our growth or uh, perhaps even more dangerous, leading to conflict, things like that. Like what has, what's been the, the negative effects of falling into this trap of thinking there's got to be one right answer? Yeah, I, I think you just picked the two things that came to my mind, and, and I want to talk about conflict for a second. Mm-hmm. We have a long history, especially since the Reformation, yeah. of more and more fragmentation yeah. around conflict over the right meaning. You know, I had somebody ask me the other day when I was talking a little bit about all of this, they said, mm-hmm. so if there's these different meanings, do you ever find in the church fathers' writings them being critical of of other of fathers or other question. readings? Yeah. I said, I've never thought of that. And I thought about it and looked. I can recall nothing wow. in my years of reading mm-hmm. where um, a church father criticized another uh, on their reading of the scriptures. Hmm. In fact, there's just... It just isn't criticism. Yeah. And I think that's because they realize that there's unending, limitless, like the quote I said today, it's it's shallow enough that, you know, a babe I can be in it and deep yeah. enough you can't touch the bottom. Yeah. And, and so there's just great, I think, great mutual respect. Basically, it goes, wow, I never saw that, mm. rather than that's not the way I see it. And yeah. isn't that very much what our modern historical critical method has led us yeah. to, that's not the way I see it. Yeah. So I think it's had a real uh, harmful effect. Yeah. Secondly, and, and you alluded to this too, I was going to say, I think it causes us to be satisfied way mm-hmm. too quickly in yeah. the scripture. And well, I'm just doing my morning reading and what do you know, I'm in John 12 this today. And rather than Holy Spirit, what is the new wine for today? Mm. What do you want to show me? Yeah. You uh, mentor, disciple, pastors and leaders around the globe, mm-hmm. uh, many of whom are, are preaching and teaching on a regular basis. As you've talked to them uh, about moving not away from but beyond the historical critical method, mm-hmm. I'm interested to know kind of what that journey has been like for them. Wow. Uh, has it changed <laughs> based on, on what you've experienced or heard feedback on? Has, has it changed the way they preach? Um, have, what's their initial response to that? Are they hesitant or do they embrace this concept? What, what's it been like? Well, it's always a, entering into a, you know, when you, when you start down a path in a new forest, mm-hmm. you get your eyes out for 
lions and tigers and bears. <laughs> oh my! <laughs> but um, but as they come in, so I I can think of uh, right now. I can think of three specific cases of pastors, uh, four, uh, who it has greatly impacted the way they both understand and the way they preach and mm-hmm. teach their church. Yeah. Um, you know, it's. It's a wide. The river of God is wide. How yep. many times have we said that? And I think this kind of a reading is is part of recognizing how wide that river is. Yeah. In one sense, I would think it would be quite liberating in just sermon preparation, especially as you said, if you're coming to a familiar passage and you got to preach this passage, and it's like, yeah, but everybody's preached this already. Like, well, there's nothing left to be said. But if you <laughs> come to it with a, there's something new for me today. There's something new for my congregation today. Yeah, there is. That would really open things up for yeah. you, I imagine. I, and you know, I always encourage people to. Uh, you asked me uh, a couple of weeks ago, I think, did I recommend a book to introduce church fathers? And mm-hmm. I, I mentioned Christopher Hall's book. Yeah, that's a great starting place. The, I would really encourage people to look. Um, Clement Olivier wrote a classic book when its title suddenly escapes me, but it's a pale blue cover. And uh, um, look for the pale blue cover. (laughs) I think we need some help because we have known nothing but dualistic thinking Mm. as we've approached the scripture. Yeah. Um, I had another question, and it's just escaped my mind. There you go. Uh, I wanted to ask you actually. Oh, I know what it was. I, I was going to comment on – it's a comment, not a, not a question, I guess. But I found it really interesting. I think today was the first time I heard you almost disagree with the church fathers when when you were looking at the, the literal meaning of that parable. Look at the uh, – you know, hey, the the wheat equals this, the field equals this, that sort of thing. And, and you'd said uh, the hey, church it's, fathers – It's the world. Yeah. And the church fathers and said it's, it's – It's the church. Yeah. And, and so there you go. And so if I stayed within a dualistic mindset, I'd say, well, I'm going to write that off. Yeah. Instead of embracing, wow, and it's more. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, a history question, if you will. Sure. Uh, 70 AD. Yeah. Uh, it's interesting because when you read Luke, especially a lot of N.T. writes uh, stuff on Luke, uh, he often mentions that Jesus is really more often than not – when we read things and think he's talking end times, he's actually talking about 70 In AD. Matthew 24 and, as well. And warning yep. them about yep. the dangers of what's coming. Yep. And telling them, hey, cut it out. Cut what out? Like what – do you know what, uh, what the Jews were up to that ultimately led to 70 AD that Jesus was trying to get their attention on? Well, I can only speak in broad strokes, mm-hmm. um, although it's interesting because in my morning reading right now, I'm in the Maccabees. Mm. And so that starts at about 167 BC and how they went against their Greek oppressors. Interesting. Um, <laughs> there has been many uprisings. We we read in the Gospels, Jesus' trial, they talk about um, – Uprising. Yeah. Um, so there was guerrilla warfare against Rome. Yeah. And they didn't ease up on it. And eventually Rome had a different leader who said, that's enough. That's enough. enough. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, speaking of Luke, by the way, just a, 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 another history question, perhaps. But I've noticed I'm reading a, a chronological Bible right now, like chronological mm. Bible study. So it, it takes uh, these events and puts them in chronological order, so you'll get similar passages right up against each other. In the Gospels, that means that, you know, the editors have done their best to 
kind of organize things that way. Although we, you've taught us even that the way Matthew's writing isn't necessarily chronological. At times, he's saying, "Hey, Jesus would have taught this a whole bunch of times. I'm going to put these all together for yep. a, a thematic reason." Yep. But it's interesting to me seeing how often there are parallels between Luke and Matthew's writings. Just how they seem to group the same parables together and things like that. Is there is there like a historical reason for that? Was Luke Using Matthew's writings as a reference? Well, that's that's great. Uh, that you've just opened up a whole big deal. Um, some of that <laughs> is remember do. oral tradition. Mm-hmm. People people could remember most or all of these gospels, yeah. and they were in an order. Secondly, there's a, a, a source that that many think um, called Q, the Q source, and and it's. It's a source they don't actually know. They've never found that source, yeah. but they're saying there's so much commonality they must have been drawing from a, a third source. Interesting. And uh, so you'll see a lot of reference to Q. And I certainly the historical critical guys uh, and uh, what's called redactive criticism where you compare two different gospels, Luke and Matthew, to see where the difference mm-hmm. is. Uh, they would embrace that, and, and I don't really have a big problem with that. But it is, although it's pretty solid, it's still in the theoretical realm. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. All right. Uh, you've left us with a homework assignment to go yeah. and uh, and read some yeah. some parables. I'd love to get some feedback uh, from some of our listeners. So if if you want to do that this week, uh, whenever this week is for you, some of you I know listen to this much later because you're you're still catching up. Uh, but send us an email. We'd love to hear from you. Uh, podcast at impactnations.com. Tell us what you saw, what the Lord's been when showing been showing you in that that third water and wine meaning, uh, the mystery of yeah. Christ meaning. In, in and and just to parables. point out, then they may see this. But but just like mustard seed and leaven were paired together, mm-hmm. very very similar. It was for emphasis. Yeah. You know, it's it's the Hebrews talked about parallelism. So yeah. you say it again in a different way. Mm-hmm. Uh, you'll find, especially with the treasure in the field and the pearl of great price, yeah. it's it's the very same two similitudes. There's a little gap and then a slightly longer with the dragnet, but mm-hmm. it's making the same point. Yeah. Very good. Uh, and do you have any? Uh, just very quickly, practical suggestions. If somebody wants to sit down and seek out the water to wine meaning, how should, w- what's the practice? They, they okay. sit down with those passages and, and do and, what? And you pray and you say, Lord, what do you want to show me? Mm-hmm. Right? And you take down some notes. If you want to get some help in that, then uh, go to Mr. Google <laughs> and say, uh, Church fathers mm-hmm. on parable of treasure hidden in the mm. field. Yeah. Okay. Love it. Awesome. All right. Well, there you go. Your first ever homework assignment here on the Impact Nations podcast. Thank you so much for being with us today. Uh, you can join us every week, uh, Thursday at 3 p.m. Mountain Time uh, on uh, YouTube or Facebook Live. Uh, or if you'd like, you can get the audio podcast delivered straight to your device every week, and it'll be waiting there for you so you can listen on your commute. Uh, we're so glad to have had you here with us today, and we're looking forward to seeing you again next week. God bless you. Yeah, God bless you.